You make my point. <laughs> that as long as a white man does it, it's all right. A black man is supposed to have no feelings. But when a black man strikes back, he's an extremist. He's supposed to sit passively and have no feelings, be nonviolent, and love his enemy. No matter what kind of attack, be it verbal or otherwise, he's supposed to take it. But if he stands up and in any way tries to defend himself, <laughs> then he's an extremist. <laughs> I think that the uh, speaker who preceded me is getting exactly what he asked for. The, uh, <laughs> my reason for believing in extremism, intelligently directed extremism, extremism in defense of liberty, extremism in quest of justice is because I firmly believe in my heart that the day that the black man takes an uncompromising step and realizes that he's within his rights when his own freedom is being jeopardized to use any means necessary to bring about his freedom or put a halt to that injustice, I don't think he'll be by himself. I live in America where there are only 22 million blacks against probably 160 million whites. One of the reasons that I'm in no way reluctant or hesitant to do whatever is necessary to see that black people do something to protect themselves, I honestly believe that the day that they do, many whites will have more respect for them and that there will be more whites on their side than are now on their side with these little wishy-washy, love thy, love thy enemy uh, approach that they've been using up to now. And if I'm wrong, then you are racialists. <laughs> As I said earlier, uh, in my conclusion, I'm a Muslim. I believe in the religion of Islam. I believe in Allah, I believe in Muhammad, I believe in all of the prophets. I believe in fasting, prayer, charity, and that which is incumbent upon a Muslim to fulfill in order to be a Muslim. In April, I was fortunate to make the Hajj to Mecca and went back again in September to try and carry out my religious uh, functions and, and, and uh, requirements. But at the same time that I believe in that religion, I have to point out I'm also an American Negro. And I live in a society who, whose, whose uh, social system is based upon the castration of the black man, whose political system is based on castration of the black man, and whose economy is based upon the castration of the black man. A society which in 1964 has more subtle, deceptive, deceitful methods to make the rest of the world think that it's cleaning up its house, while at the same time the thing, same things are happening to us in 1964 that happened in 1954, 1924, and in 1984. They came up with what they call a civil rights bill in 1964, supposedly to solve our problem, and after the bill was signed, uh, three civil rights workers were murdered in cold blood. And the FBI uh, head, Hoover, admits that they know who did it. They've known ever since it happened and they've done nothing about it. Civil rights bill down the drain. No matter how many bills pass, black people in that country, where I'm from, still, our lives are not worth two cents. 
And the government has shown its inability or either its unwillingness to do whatever is necessary to protect life and property where the black American is concerned. So my contention is that whenever a people come to the conclusion that the government which they have supported proves itself unwilling and, or proves itself unable to protect our lives and protect our property because we have the wrong color skin. We are not human beings unless we ourselves band together and do whatever, however, whenever is necessary to see that our lives and our property is protected. And I doubt that any person in here would refuse to do the same thing were he in the same position, or I should say were he in the same condition. for y'all why the fuck does jennifer lopez keep getting married in every movie she's in i mean we got made in manhattan we got the wedding planner marry me monster in law the backup plan el cantante selena and now shotgun wedding now a few years ago there was a joke that uh, J-Lo was collecting engagement rings like Thanos was collecting Infinity Stones. And it makes sense now because I believe that J-Lo is in the MCU, her own MCU, the Marriage Cinematic Universe, where she's marrying different variants of the same white guy. As far as I'm concerned, Luke Wilson, Owen Wilson, Matthew McConaughey, uh, Ralph Phineas, uh, the dude from Transformers, they all look the same at this point. Since Tom Brady's getting divorced, he has seven Super Bowl rings. And if J-Lo and Ben Affleck don't work out and she and Tom Brady get together, I am almost certain that the Milky Way galaxy, as we know it, will implode on itself and give birth to a new one. It's basic science at this point. I think I want to see Jennifer Lopez actually 
I don't know, progress to her next phase of stardom. A hip Latina auntie. Shit, I'll write that movie. I'll write a new franchise called The Auntie. So Jennifer Lopez, J-Lo, my dear, Jenny from the Block, if you're watching this podcast, which you're probably not, just know that Keenan Jerome Floyd is willing to write a screenplay for you for the low price of $250,000. It's going to be called The Auntie. It's going to be about a Barwequa aunt that moonlights as a superhero called La Wepa. She'd look like a... uh, she looked like a brown-skinned Mrs. Incredible. That's that's how I'm envisioning her. Um, and who knows? Maybe we could get Ben Affleck to make a cameo as Batman in the movie. Um, the point is, and this is what I'm trying to say, is that I'm tired of Jennifer Lopez wedding movies. I mean, at this point, I think it's appropriate for me to quote the title of one of your most famous movies. Enough. So dating in LA is hard uh, because of inflation. It's expensive as hell. To go every time I leave my house, I spend a hundred dollars. I don't know why. I don't know how. Um, so ladies, just be a little bit more patient with us. You know, we're trying to make more money. Every time we make more money, all the prices go up. Uh, housing is expensive. Food is expensive. Gasoline is expensive as hell in this city. Uh, so much so that every time we make the arrangements to go out, we have to make sure that that pussy or dick is worth leaving the house for. Because we might have some difficulties paying rent on the first if it ain't. You know what I mean? Um, I just got air fryer. Um, so that means I'm better than you. Um... You know, I could cook a whole Thanksgiving dinner in that thing, you know? So, you know, I'm trying to use it as much as I can. I'm trying to save money. I'm trying to, I'm trying to throw down in the kitchen, air fryer style. Um, unfortunately, I just started this new diet where I have to eat seasonless chicken and asparagus uh, six days a week. Um, another reason it's sad is because a few weeks ago I bought a harem of seasoning from Ralph's and, um, before I swiped my savers card, you know how much these seasonings that I bought cost me a hundred and four motherfucking dollars, a hundred and four dollars. And we all know that only black and brown people use seasoning. These prices are racist. Um, you know, I remember in the, uh, in the nineties, when we would go to McDonald's and order an extra value meal, extra value meals back then only cost $2 and 99 cents. That's right. You could get a Big Mac meal. You could get a, uh, quarter pounder meal. You could get a two cheeseburger meal for two ninety nine. Now, unfortunately, the chicken nuggets were made from uh, chicken heads and dark meat, so I never really got any uh, any chicken nuggets. I spilled some water. 
I will always try to get a uh, a quarter pounder or uh, two cheeseburgers. I didn't. I like Big Macs, by, but my hands were too small for Big Macs. Um, so every time I would try to eat a Big Mac as a kid, it would always fall apart in my hands, and I would cry, you know, because I was a bitch ass kid. But thinking about it, two ninety nine now a Big Mac meal costs ten dollars and fifty four cents, and I could just eat it just fine. Ten dollars and fifty four cents. If I want two Big Macs and a large fry, I'm always I'm all spending almost twenty dollars, right? So it made me think about when, uh, back in the day when we could supersize our meals, how much was supersizing your meal? 39 cents. And then our parents had the gall to tell us that they couldn't afford it. Bitch, $2 and 99 cents. And you couldn't afford fucking 39 cents for a few more ounces of French fries. I mean, if you're trying to protect us from having a stroke at 11, I totally get that. But telling us that 30 you didn't have the 39 cents? Man, if I had a time machine, I would go back to that drive-through and take the shake the shit out of my parents and be like, "Yo, don't you realize that this is the cheapest this has ever been for us since McDonald's came out in the 1950s when you could get a hamburger for 49 59 cents?" But probably back then, black people were were probably not allowed to eat at McDonald's uh, because of Jim Crow. But um, I'm just saying, when you know McDonald's, which is the Ross of restaurants, you know, the Ross uh, pay for less or whatever it's called, when that's too expensive... You know society ain't shit. Ladies, just so you know, we have spiraled and crashed burned and crashed and burned into a recession. We're in a recession now. We've 9-11'd into a recession. So if a man like myself offers to cook you dinner, it's not because I'm trying to get into your pants. It's so that I can pay rent um, and uh, show you that I'm actually a very good cook. And I know some women will be like, well, if you broke, just say that. Well, guess what, bitch? I'm broke. I said it. I'm broke. Um, things are too expensive. I spent $104 on seasoning. I need to use this shit. I was today years old when I realized that Ray J uh, was in the movie Mars Attacks. And he was fucking Whitney Houston. Not at the same time, because Ray J was a little kid in Mars Attacks. But, like, later, like, around the time when he was messing with Kim um, Kim Kardashian, like, 2010 to 2012, this dude was bagging Whitney Houston. I had seen Mars Attacks a few times, and I just didn't realize, because I really I didn't know who, like, Ray J was. Um, you know, he's one of those actors that you would just see and stuff, and you, would, you wouldn't see him enough to know him by name. But you would see him enough to be like, oh, he's in movies. Uh, apparently, Ray J was uh, the black kid that was in the White House. He was shooting the aliens with the uh, alien uh, guns or whatever. I, You know, I have to go back and watch the movie because I don't remember exactly what happens. 
I know it was uh it was like a weird movie like it was kind of like a 1950s like Saturday matinee sci-fi film um which was an amazing design by the way but personally in 1996 I was more of a twister and um Independence Day person like if you ask me what would you rather watch Mars attacks uh or Independence Day it would be Welcome to Earth all day. 1996 was an amazing time uh, for movies, for going to the theaters. Um, I mean, 1995 and 1996. Oh, what year did The Lion King come out? 94? Okay, so 94, 95, and 96 were all amazing uh, times at the movie theater. I went to see Twister. At the movies, that was sold out. That was great. Uh, Bill Paxton, Helen Hunt. Uh, rest in peace, Bill Paxton. And Philip Seymour Hoffman. That was in Twister. It's a great movie. Uh, Independence Day, fantastic. Fantastic movie. Um, how much they were able to uh, jam so many people in one movie. And we gave a fuck about everybody. Um, now, and I've lived in both of the locations that they blew up in the movie. I've lived in New York City, and I've lived in uh, Los Angeles. I think if aliens came back to actually blow up Los Angeles, I would not be uh, surprised. I would probably not be shocked either. I mean, I'm in the valley, so the fireball from the alien uh, laser is probably not going to get to me anyway. I might see it over the hill. I'm like, oh shit, it's hot over there. Um, I don't remember. Yeah, they didn't show the valley in Independence Day, so I'm not really sure whether uh, Encino got murked in Independence Day. I might have to ask uh, the director about that. Or maybe read some fan... Maybe I should write a fan fiction story. Um, I'm going to write a fan fiction story called Encino at the End. And it'll be about what was going on in Encino... Um, around the time of the alien invasion, it was probably just, uh, Brendan Fraser and Polly Shore running around Ventura Boulevard trying to find, uh, <laughs> trying to find a snow cone or, or some shit. Um, I'm getting off track, but, uh, so Ray J was messing with Whitney Houston, uh, 2010 to 2012. And Whitney Hughes has a special place in my heart for two reasons. One of the first records that I listened to, yes, I said records on vinyl, was her first album. Uh, I don't know what it was called exactly, but it was the one where she was on front of it in the um, Jazzercise outfit. You know, that like Jazzercise straps and he had, she had her hands up. She had like big poofy like 80s hair. And I Want to Dance with Somebody was on the... Was on... The record. Let me actually see if that's actually the name of the record. Whitney Houston's Whitney Houston's first album. Whitney Houston's first album. Okay, my bad. It wasn't the first album. Her first album was called Whitney Houston. Boring. Um, the second album was called Whitney Dancing Special. Okay. 
Damn. Okay. Uh, the third album. Whitney Houston's third album was the one we had. Uh, it was called Whitney. Well, they said it's the second studio. So, they say it's the second studio album. Which one? What well, what was Whitney Houston? Okay, so Whitney Houston, it's a debut studio album. Okay, cool. And then her second album was Whitney Dancing Special. Oh, it was an extended play remix album. Okay, so it was an EP. Then... Oh, Jermaine Jackson was the producer on uh, Whitney's dancing album. Then, okay. Then, Whitney, okay, so her second studio album was the first album I had listened to. It was called Whitney, and it had I Want to Dance with Somebody. Um, then We Almost Have It All, So Emotional, and Where Do Broken Hearts Go? Um, yeah, we had that record. We had that record. The vinyl record. Uh, so I grew up listening to the Whitney album. Right. Then again, going back to the nineties, waiting to exhale the album. Babyface, Whitney Houston, TLC. I was shoop shoop shooping on road trips all day, every day. Whitney Houston. Fucking love Whitney Houston. Right? So anyway, so Ray J was hooking up with Whitney. And good for him. Um but apparently it pissed off uh, stupid-ass Kim Kardashian. And there's an alleged uh, leaked audio of a voicemail that Kim left on Ray J's phone where she said that he was desperate for attention. First of all, watch how you speak uh, to Ray J and to Whitney, by the way. Um, she calls him and she says that Ray J's desperate for attention, which is the spray tan pot calling the kettle black, if, if you ask me. Um, and she said, go have fun with old hag Whitney. Huh? Like crack is definitely not whack with you guys. So again, in this voicemail, Kim K said, go with, have fun with old hag Whitney. Like crack is definitely not whack with you guys. First of all, Kim Kardashian, what's have you, what song have you, what number one hit have you sang? Kim Kardashian, where's your I Want to Dance with Somebody? Hmm? Did you sing a song on the Waiting to Exhale soundtrack? Did you uh, did you sing the uh, end credit theme song for The Prince of Egypt? Didn't think so. See, that's one of the reasons that I will never respect the Kardashians. Like, I like I don't care if you like the Kardashians. That's fine. But anyone that's repeatedly disrespecting black people, I can't rock with. And it's because it's people that... And you see this a lot out here in L.A., especially in entertainment. You see people using black people for... To gain popularity, because everybody wants to be black, but no one wants to be black, right? Um, they try to gain popularity by um, by being relatable to black people, because everybody that's not black wants to be called cool by black people. So they copy our style until they don't need it anymore. 
Like, that's what you saw, saw with Aquafina, how Aquafina was using, like, a black scent and stuff for a few years until Disney hired her for some real movies. And then all of a sudden, she started talking like Nora from Queens. You know, people are like, yo, Aquafina, what the fuck happened uh, to your black scent? And she's like, excuse me, my, uh, my name is Nora. And I'm from Queens. I, I don't know what you're talking about. No, you were talking black for like five years. You, you like rapped and, and and you did Crazy Rich Asians where you were talking black. Like what happened? You were like going yo, yo, yo and shit. Like what happened with that shit? Um, I'm not exactly sure what you mean by black scent. I'm not exactly, uh, I'm not aware of any black scent being had. Uh, but if I have offended somebody, I will, um, I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to listen and I'm willing to learn as I quietly disable all of my social media accounts so that no one can uh, send me any disparaging comments about me um, culture vulturing uh, black culture. Thank you very much. Um, you can refer to my publicist, Billy Yang. Thank you very much. I am Nora from Queens. So that's why I don't really rock uh with the kardashians and then they want to like play victim when they get called out and all that shit and my question is what has the kardashians really contributed to society tell me what the kardashians have done to contribute to society um have they moved the culture forward i mean perhaps they moved us they moved some people into body dysmorphia um tanning blackface plastic surgery a little bit of anorexia. And the treasure of them all is OnlyFans. Because now, which I will say is is something that's kind of cool. How, like, women can use their sexuality to um, gain a popular career. And maybe get money and get endorsements. You know? I think that's what people are trying to do on Only, OnlyFans. Like, back in the day... When I used to watch porn on VHS tapes, I didn't know any porn star by name because I was just mesmerized, mesmerized by, you know, the titties and 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 the sex and the going in and out, you know, and the camera angles and the amazing writing uh, that these movies had. Like, have you ever seen? Uh, the Smart Ass Vacations, starring Christina King, where these two women went on vacation with no money for some reason, and everywhere they went, they fucked their way into uh, the next location. It was like a porno video game where they had to fuck uh, a boss to get to the next level. TT Boy was in it. I don't know if you guys remember TT Boy. Um, Hawaiian Blast. Hawaiian Blast was a cool movie uh, where all of these people went to Hawaii um, uh, and they were on this tour driving around and I guess someone stole some money from somebody and then uh, they all started fucking um, and Peter North was in it and then this Hawaiian woman that was like mystical showed up and fucked everybody. Um, I don't remember exactly what happened at the end. I think, like, a volcano exploded and killed everyone. But um, 
that was kind of cool. Confessions, uh, Confessions of Christy, where Christy Canyon, big titty Christy Canyon, played a therapist, and her um, <laughs> her client was a Donald Trump ripoff named Donald Rump, and it was about him. Uh, he was having like marital issues with his wife or whatever. And he was, like, building a hotel, and him and his wife used to fuck a lot, but they don't fuck no more because he's, like, messing around with other women. So it's just uh, Christy Canyon uh, fucking a whole bunch of people that really need therapy. Um, That's a fantastic movie, too. That's almost like real life. Anyway, so... (laughs) Oh, God. All right. All of these are available on VHS. Or you could probably just find them on xhamster.com. Um, but back in the day, I didn't know. I didn't know who any porn stars were by name. And um, now I can actually be fans of these people. You know, I can be fans of Peter North and Mr. Marcus and, and Lisa Ann and Lisa Lee, the Latina, not the British woman. Misty Stone. Vanessa Blue, Tiana Trump, Heather Hunter, uh, Mia Khalifa, or Christy Canyon. All of these women have podcast and Amazon wish list. Remember, Paris Hilton sucked so Kim Kardashian could fuck so the OGs could buck and make money on social media. I remember when I saw the uh, Kim Kardashian Ray J tape for the first time. Um, to be honest with you, I think it's the Men in Black 2 of celebrity sex tapes. I was highly disappointed. Um, Kim kept her bra and panties on the whole time. And and she didn't even have, like, nice bra and panties on. Like, the bra and panties that she had on looked like they were made of leftover uh, quilt squares. Or something that her grandma didn't use to like finish a quilt. Like they look these panties and these panties look heavy. Like her panties look like the tablecloth that's on top of the dining room table in the dining room that no one uses. You know, it's just kind of it's like decorative. And like you're scared. They're like satin it's like a satin tablecloth. And it makes uh the dining room look like a morgue. Or something in haunted in a haunted mansion. It's goofy, um, and the way that they were having sex on the tape, it was like they were fucking on a CBS sitcom. You know, uh, when you would watch a sitcom on CBS, and someone would have sex, like no one got naked. Like they always kept their pajamas on. Uh, like the husband would just climb, they would be like in bed in their pajamas, like full ass pajamas, right? And the husband will be like, okay, well, let's have sex now. And he would roll over, and either the husband will keep his shirt on, or he would stick his, his ding-a-ling through his, through his pajama pants or his boxers. The woman would just like, she, I mean, she didn't even like pull her skirt up. She just laid there. And then afterwards, the husband would be like, ugh, that was great. And he would lay on his back. And the joke will always be that his wife would never have an orgasm. And the reason is because y'all were fucking in flannel. Like, if you want to actually have good sex, you need to get naked. I mean, you can maybe keep your socks on, but you can't. But you you gotta be naked. 
that's like one of the reasons I think they don't have a lot of black sitcoms anymore. Uh, because like black people, we don't like fuck with pajamas on. Like we're at least pulling the shits down to our ankles or something. So most of the sex tape is Kim Kardashian and Ray J hanging out in this hotel room, like in in the hotel lobby, uh, you know, in the hallway, you know, it cuts to Kim Kardashian uh, putting on eyeliner and chewing gum in the bathroom. They're hanging out by the pool. Um, they're in the elevator just being normal. And then all of a sudden, Ray J comes and starts grabbing her butt. And at nighttime, Ray J just shows up with this crooked dick and pulls uh, Kim's panties to the side a little bit and starts fucking the shit out of her, right? But Kim is just like laying there with her hands behind her back. So I don't know exactly what that meant. But it looked like she was kind of bored. Like, she made no noise. that They had to take one snippet of Kim Kardashian moaning and loop it through the entire 45 minutes of them having sex. Like, there was no money shot. There was no... Like, there really wasn't any, like, hot kissing. Like, my favorite part of pornos is kissing. I don't know what's... I don't know what was going on. And this fucking thing, but they weren't really like you couldn't even really see her face. To, my personal opinion is I like Paris Hilton sex tape way better, and that shit was shot in night vision. So that basically uh, says how bad the Kim Kardashian sex tape was. So you know it's getting to a point now where like Ray J is like flipping out. He's trying to reveal that Kris Jenner. Is a madam, which um, is true. And, um, you know, he's basically saying that she manipulated the situation so that the tape would get out and all that stuff. Um, Their PR is amazing. Because the Kardashians can never do wrong. Like, Chris is a marketing genius. And that brings us to the subject at hand, Kanye West, Kanye West, Omari Kanye West, or Ye, the artist formerly known as Kanye. Um, Let me tell you this. It's hard to keep up with Kanye or Ye, uh, because when I first decided to talk about this, he had only did one thing. He had debuted a White Lives Matter sweatshirt. At the Paris Fashion Week, his show at the Paris Fashion Week. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to talk about this shit. I mean, there'll be one segment uh, of my episode, and then I'll move on and talk about some other shit. But now I have to push back all the other shit I want to talk about to later episodes, which is good because I'll have more content now. But I got I have to push back all that other shit because Kanye keeps doing shit. I haven't checked the news today, so I don't know what other shit Kanye has done. But Kanye keeps doing shit. And for me, it's a very complicated conversation because I like Kanye. I like Kanye a lot. And fuck y'all for judging me because there's a lot of people that you like that ain't shit. So don't fucking judge me. 
for liking Kanye. Um, I one of the reasons I like Kanye is because I watched. Well, first of all, I love his debut album, College Dropout. College Dropout, late registration, um, graduation, all incredible albums. You know, I was listening to Kanye when I was in college. Um, and he got me through college, like stronger, all that shit. He got me, he got me through college. So I have this special bond with Kanye's music. Now, when I saw the Netflix special, the three-part Netflix special, Genius, like it really, for any, for any person that's a creative, and any person that's a black creative, especially a black man that's a creative, to see what we have to go through to be considered great is astonishing. I'm kind of the same. I don't know. I don't know when Kanye was born. Let me see when Kanye was born. I, I don't necessarily believe in horoscopes and shit, but June eighth, June eighth. What's that? June 8th. Horoscope. June 8th. Zodiac sign. Alright, so he's a Gemini. Okay, I don't really know what that means. Um, What does that mean? Let me look. Gemini is chatty, curious, and cerebral. Um, my memory card ran out of memory, so I had to switch. Um, I had to switch memory cards, but now we are back. We're back on track. So we were looking at, uh, Gemini, Gemini personality traits. So the ruler of Gemini is the planet of communication, language, and travel. Gemini is represented by two people talking back and forth, the twins in constant conversation, further reinforcing that this is a social sign with an affinity for gossip and a strong need for mental and physical stimulation. As an air sign, Gemini is also associated with the mind and knowledge. Gemini's form connections through dialogue, communication, debate, and questions. Like the ever-curious child constantly asking why, Gemini is like to pick things apart to understand them. They're also verbal w- wizards tending to have a knack for relating to people through language and maneuvering seamlessly between social spheres. I mean, that basically, that basically nails Kanye to a T. Like, I don't know if you guys got a chance to watch the Drink Champs um, interview before they took it down, which uh, I don't necessarily agree with. Um... The way that Kanye, like, interacted, like, in this interview, how he kept referring to himself as an avatar in a video game, you know, how he tried to, you know, the way he communicates is 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 through nerddom, which is something that I understand, meaning that I'm, I'm not necessarily a nerd, but I understand the lingo. I understand what it means to exist in this space they have to move back and forth from, but... You know, watching the the Netflix documentary, you know, it was a lot to be said about uh, the sacrifices that he made 
to get his to get his voice heard through his music. Um, you know, going through the same thing a lot of creators go through this working ten hours a day. You know, working ten hours a day, um, <clears throat> and then at night having to spend time working on your own stuff. You know, that's what I've done in the sense. You know, I work ten hours a day at a day job. You know, I have other responsibilities I have to take care of after work. But, you know, trying to do something like this podcast or trying to work on jokes or write or like whatever. Right. Like it's 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 physically taxing. You know, it's physically taxing. It exhausts the mind, it exhausts the brain. And it's hard to be a creative when you're working on things for other people, not necessarily your own stuff. So it's like now he has the opportunity to basically do whatever he wants. But he's also a person, he, he, he's a beacon of debate. He's always questioning. He's always, you know, he's always trying to get to the bottom of something. However, I think uh, he talks too much. And I think he needs a mental health check. He needs a mental health vacation, man. He needs to go and chill out in Wyoming for a little bit more. But when you look at the documentary... He had a complete support system. He had friends that were in the industry. He had his friends that were, you know, behind the camera helping him with this documentary. Um, you know, he had his mother, who was his biggest fan, who was his uh, business and financial advisor, who, you know, it was interesting to be able to see him actually light up every time that he saw his mother. You know, he would go, hey, I got this idea for a new song. What do you think? And then he would rap the lyrics to his mom or he'd be like, yo, I got an idea for, for this. What do you think? Right. And he's not the only artist, music artist that's diversifying, you know, that diversifies their talents. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of Kid Cudi. You know, if you don't get, haven't gotten a chance, check out his, uh, animated series on, uh, Netflix, Intergalactic, incredible, incredible uh, piece of work, along with this album also called Intergalactic. But, you know, I really relate to these type of creatives who they like to diversify uh, their portfolio. And every time people ask me, they're like, well, what do you do? Uh, you know, who who do you, you know, what, who, like, what are you or blah, 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 or whatever, right? And it's like, you know, I do. I don't, it's because we, the thing is, it's hard to explain because when you say you do too many things, it makes it look like that you don't get anything done. So you have to be very careful. You're like, yeah, well, you know, I'm like an entrepreneur. Um, I'm making, uh, I'm making like, uh, I'm making woven booties for like kittens and shit. Um, you know, but I also like, uh, I also like rollerblading. So sometimes you know, I go rollerblading, but I'm thinking of, like, making, like, a new way of, like, rollerblading, like, on magnets, you know what I'm saying? So, like, I'm trying to, like, work on that. You know, I'm also, I'm also, like, a karaoke superstar, so, you know, I'm trying to, like, get on America's Got Talent. You know, it's, like, really hard to, like, when you're doing, like, a bunch of stuff and your mind is going a million miles a minute, you know, it's, it's hard to really, like, lock it down and to get people to take you seriously. But somehow... Kanye was able to do it. He was able to lay down the groundwork for the blueprint and also work in his own beats. And he would go into uh, Rockefeller day after day after day after day and play his CD for the 
AR people and for the executives and stuff. And they kind of looked at him and for like Damon Dash and they would kind of look at him like, oh, you know, that's just Kanye. You know, Kanye, he's a uh, he's a producer, you know, he gets shit done. But, you know, he's Kanye. Right. And he kept working at it and working at it and working at it until he finally got it made. Right. And it was interesting to see how much work that he was dedicating to his album so much that he like fell asleep and got into that car accident that fucked up his jaw. You know, that the reason he has like a bigger lower jaw is because he has a plate in his face, right? Um, and he did Through the Wire, which was an was a magnificent song. And he finally, you know, he finally got it made. But in the documentary, you started seeing you start seeing him becoming more of a stone wall. Like before he was like innocent, he was more um, open. You know, he was he was excited about his work, but then over time he became serious, a lot more serious. And especially when it got to when his mother died, that's when everything changed. In my opinion. That's when everything changed. And now we're basically seeing we're basically seeing that impetus. You know, I think Kanye has a lot of yes men around him or yes women that they just agree with everything. But his mother wasn't a yes woman. His mother actually kept him on the straight and narrow. I mean, fuck the Kardashians. Kim, you think she he cared about her opinion? So now Kanye is on this crusade about free thought amongst black people. And to be honest with you, I think the crusade is important. I think it's important in the sense that for centuries, society has tried to control the black voice. And you hear people talk about being on the right side of history. Well, you have to remember that that's subjective. Because history depends on who's telling the story. You know, from, from one perspective, you might say, well, this is what history is. But history lives out a lot of times. History books leave out a lot of detail. And when it comes to black people, our involvement in history is often left out. So what happens when, when people say, well, you want to be on the right side of history? Well, then which which history are we talking about? So a lot of times people think that they have the right to tell us what our history is or, or how we should think our history should be. And when you have people that speak up on it, not just Kanye, but people in general that say, yo, this is the truth. This is what we need to know so that we're able to move forward so we can put some things behind us. It's almost like, oh, no, you don't know what you're talking about or you're crazy or you sound goofy, right? But the way that this world works, especially when it comes to government, is a lot of these policies are goofy. A lot of these policies don't make sense because when you think about it, um, the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence were written and signed and approved before slaves were free. So when it comes to American history, it's like, okay, well, what are we talking about? When we say, well, the Constitution says this, 
And the Declaration of Independence says this. Yeah, but we weren't we weren't in the blueprint of the country. You know, the expectation that we were going to be able to help build the country or we were going to build the country, but as property, not as volunteers or sentient human beings. So when I listen to people talk about this free thought and then people start expressing themselves um, about their viewpoint of their existence or, or, or a way of thinking that can kind of free us from mental shackles and then they get immediately attacked by a mainstream entity, it kind of makes you think. But I digress. That's something that I'll talk about in a little bit. Um, so basically, this is what happened at the Paris Fashion Week. Kanye, along with Candace Owens at his side, were photographed wearing White Lives Matter sweatshirts. And naturally, black Twitter blew up. You know, they were calling Kanye a sellout. They were saying that his rhetoric is dangerous. It was giving ammunition to white supremacists. It was, uh, it was really, um, it was really something that should not be tolerated by black people. And to be honest with you, the only people that were really reacting to it were black people. And, I mean, there's two things, there's two reasons why that probably happened. One reason is probably because people that weren't black probably didn't really care that much. Uh, a second reason is probably people that aren't black are probably like, yeah, what he's saying is true. A third reason is probably has been for the last 10 years, black people, we have told everyone to stay out of black people's business. So this is basically a conversation just for us, even though it was on a worldwide stage, right? So, you had a lot of people, black people in Hollywood, you know, that that their brand depended on them saying something, said, you know, he needs to be canceled, he needs to be this, he needs to be that. Um, but other people that were doing their own shit, you know, they just didn't say anything or they ignored it, right? Um, they were busy. Apparently, I'm not busy enough because I'm talking about it on this podcast. But when I saw the shirt, I immediately thought that this goofy black man was trolling. I thought it was satirical. And the reason I thought that is because any person in their right mind who has a fan base. I'm getting, I'm getting emails. Any person in their right mind who has a fan base. Any person that wants to connect to black people, who knows that people respect him for his opinion and all that stuff, this is the last thing they're going to do. Unless it's a sick joke. Or it's satire. Or it's it's trolling. Or it's some type of fucked up lesson that he's trying to teach society as a whole. Um, you know, I'm half black and I'm also half agent of chaos. So it's like, I kind of, I, I kind of understand what the lesson is in a sense. You know, I also see it as like, uh, 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 a, a f- free PR. 
where someone can say, hey, you know what? Um, God damn, why do they keep... Like a, a bunch of emails, and it's not any emails that I want. Um, but it's a bunch of... Uh, what's I saying? Anyway... Um, it's a way to get free PR because now everybody's talking about Kanye for a while. Everyone was talking about Kanye even before that. How do I get people to talk about me indefinitely? You know, you attack people, you grab people by the emotion, you know, there's no time for nuance in this conversation, uh, because it's all about reaction. Now, with that being said, I'm not saying that I rock with the White Lives Matter shirts, and I don't for two reasons. First, um, I don't like the commercialization of the victimization of black people. I think that's the worst thing that has happened in the last 10 years. I think it's holding us back. I think it's not allowing us to move forward. I think we're being, um, I think we're being manipulated emotionally. I think we are... Uh, I think that it's it's preventing us from coming to the table with uh, I think it's preventing us from coming to the table with tangibles because you're always going to be able to revert back to well you know black people got a short stick in this country or whatever right which to certain people it's true but we also can't forget about the successes that we have in our community and it's getting to a point where it's like where we have to start looking at those successes and say this is who i want to strive to be you know i can work in tech or i can work in 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 real estate or i can start my own business or something like that like you don't have i don't have to be an athlete i don't have to be uh an entertainer I don't have, um, I don't have to be, I don't have to go out of my way or sacrifice my time and my body as much to be successful, right? So I, I, I think this victimization that the media was pushing for years and years and years, especially during the election cycle, I think it really did us no service. Um... And I think it's still being used to manipulate um, what we're supposed to do as black people, right? Like a lot of times you have groups that uh, go through some type of suffering and stuff, and then they try to blame black people for this. And black people should know better not to do that. Why? Because we get treated like shit and we're supposed to have empathy for other people that don't have empathy for us. I think it's a it's a it's a mechanism. I think it's a weapon. So, I really don't like this mind fuck that that we're getting where where trauma is supposed to influence us to make jump decisions, right? I also think that um, the reason that people are reacting the way they're reacting is because, especially to a lot of black men in particular that are starting to give their opinions is that a lot of uh, liberals um, and a lot of 
people in general. I, I think a lot of people did not have black friends. And they actually started getting to know black people. And then they realized that we weren't um, what they thought we were. You know? There's a lot of us that lean, uh, that don't lean 100% to one side. There's a lot of us, we have liberal views. And, and also, we, uh, you know, liberal values and also conservative values. You know? Um, there's a lot of black people that also prioritize intellectualism over ratchetness. So a lot of these, uh, a lot of these, uh, ways of trying to get us involved in politics and stuff like that by, by using like rap music or like whatever, a lot of us don't really subscribe to that. So there's no reason whatsoever for us to compare our moral compass to that, that is whiteness. Now, when I say that, I mean this standard that people look at where they're saying, well, this is the right way to do things, right? And I, I, I think that this conversation um, that we're having about bettering our community, I think it needs to stay within our community. I think we need to talk to each other. I think we need to have group meetings, group chats, um, there needs to be a media that we can subscribe to where we can say, this is what it looks like to move forward in our community. Um, and also we need to stop inviting people to the cookout. Um, which is one of the reasons we're in this situation in the first place. Now, the second reason that I wasn't digging the white lives matter, t uh, sweatshirt, uh, image uh, is because I don't fuck with Candace Owens. Now, it's not because of what she says, uh, because to be honest with you, there's some things that she says that I agree with, um, but uh, she's a grifter. I don't think she can be trusted. There's a shared difference between a person that cares about bettering their community and someone that um, talks shit. You know, like her audience isn't the people that she's trying to help. You know, it's it's not often that you see um, Candace going to an HBCU to have to have like a betterment community summit. You know, it's not often that you see Candace uh, getting on uh, a black, you know, uh, a black funded news media or, or a platform where she wants to have an objective conversation about different issues, right? You know, the the her audience, she'll go to like a Trump rally and then talk about black people. Which, I don't know why the fuck you're doing that. Or she'll get on Fox News and talk about black people. You know, or she'll get on like some all-white, goofball, proud boy, big foreheaded platform and talk about black people. Well, why are you talking about black people with them? I thought if we were talking about black issues, talk to us about the black issues. Don't give ammunition to other people. And it's because that's who pays her. That she knows that the more shit says she talks about black people, the more support that she's going to get 
from these uh, right-wing-leaning media uh, media companies. Like, I really don't know what has happened between the civil rights movement and now, but everybody is trying, it seems like everybody is trying to sell out. And what they're doing is, is that they're talking about the problem, but they're giving no solution. Like I'm saying, it's like, why are you not talking to us? If you cared, there would be a, you would surround yourself by black people that you don't necessarily agree with, by black people that you do agree with, and we all come to an understanding. But no, you're just... She's basically the right-wing uh, Oprah. Where it's like, you ain't really talking to us. You ain't really trying to help. You're just out there talking shit. You look like a fucking nut job. Um... It got so bad that even during the uh, um, the Armin Aubrey uh, court case, when Candace Owens was talking shit about um, uh, Armin Aubrey, her comments were so heinous that even Ku Klux Klan members in her comments were like, whoa, Candace, that's a little far, young lady. I mean, even we don't think a person should get shot down in the street for jogging. Like, it was so goofy how much her self-hate just spilled out. If this was an episode of Black and Ball Z, Candace would have reached Super Sambo by now. What's frustrating was frustrating about me was frustrating to me about this woman is I have been in the shoes of someone like a Candace or and someone in the lead up to this persona that she now has, right? Right? There's many, there's many black people in this country as well as the world that have been trying to survive, you know, trying to survive as a black person in this colonialistic white supremacist world. Now, when I say white supremacist, I'm not necessarily talking about the Ku Klux Klan. I'm not talking about uh, all white people are racist. I'm not talking about... I'm talking about the standard that society within itself has set forth as being the status quo. Like, for example, you see on the news every year, there's always, science has proven who's the most beautiful woman. And it's always some goofy white chicken... Wisconsin named uh, Susan with, with no ass and like a fucked up, like a weird looking face. But they're like, science has said that her, this white woman's face is symmetrical and her ass is perfect because it's not too big and it's not too small. That's what I'm talking about. That type of bullshit. Now, I don't think Susan's racist per se, but she ain't the perfect woman. But I get the lead up I get the lead up to 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 how you can become a Candace Owens, right? Story time. So I was born in Mobile, Alabama. You know, that's right on the Gulf of Mexico. It's a major port, it's a major harbor, lots of culture, Cajun culture, Creole culture, um a little bit of French, Spanish influence. 
Um, and growing up, everyone around me was black. My friends are black, family, everyone at church, everyone was black, right? My dad's job eventually moved us up to Pennsylvania, up north, right? So first we lived in Erie, Pennsylvania. And then after two years, we moved to central Pennsylvania to a small town called Montrezl, which is close to a city. It's right next door to a city named Williamsport, Pennsylvania, which is the home of Little League, if you give a shit. So we were upper middle class black family. We uh, lived in the suburbs. We, our house was okay. You know, it was kind of like a gated community. We were the only black people in the in the in this neighborhood. We were mostly the only black people in this town in Montoursville, and I was the only black kid in my school. Right, and Montoursville is literally, in my estimation, a sun downtown. You know, for a long time, they didn't like Jews. They didn't like Italians. Definitely didn't like black people. And it was always this notion that anyone that was different was going to uh, ruin the town, which is strange because there was really nothing there uh, to ruin. It was this small-ass town with nothing to do. So I don't, what are you trying to do, protect the bakery? Like, it was, it's, people are dumb. Um, and I remember, uh, I had 80 year old grandparents who did not want me hanging out with their kids at school because of the color of my skin. It's like, are you like dumb? Like what, like, what is this? Right. And when you grow up as a child and you see people reacting to you that way, it's a motherfucker on the mind. Like you're trying to figure out, did you do something wrong? You know, like, like, why don't people like me? How come, you know, in one grade I have a bunch of friends, but then the year after that, I don't have friends anymore. You know, people making jokes, you know, people, you know, classmates used to make fun of the size of my lips, you know, my uh, bell pepper nose. They would call me brother man in the hallway, which was a hacky ass race joke to begin with. Um, And then uh, they had the goal since I was in school when Eminem, uh, be blew up and then all these he was like the savior of like white trash kids he thought you know white trash kids thought they had street cred these motherfuckers would come up to me after all this shit and try to be like you know what Kenny you ain't black enough you don't talk black I'm blacker than you no you're poor and you smell um (laughs) so what happens is you don't really fit in. And uh, the main reason, I mean, to be honest with you, it's the main reason I started doing stand-up comedy. I, I, started do, I started stand-up comedy in high school because it was a trauma response. Because I was like, I need to, I can't fight everybody. I can't fight everybody. I need to figure out, I need to figure out what can I do to get my message across. So I eventually, I did stand up for the first time at the talent show. The set was amazing. Um, I killed. Uh, most comics I do for the first time kill because people don't expect you to actually be funny. Um, and I basically was able to, I was ace, I, I saw it as a way to use my humor to kind of get my point across, right? So 
it got to a point where my reaction to all this shit was just telling jokes or or saying something goofy or saying something kind of insulting a little bit. But I said it in a funny way, but I meant that shit, right? So you're being bullied by the way you look. You're being bullied by the color of your skin. You don't really fit in. So when you finally come to your community of black folks, you're like, hey, guys, you know, let's all hang out or whatever, and get some ice cream. They see you, some black people see you, not a part of their community because they're like, yo, we live in the city. You live in the fucking suburbs. You think you're better than us. You know, you think, uh, you know, you talk weird. Uh, you can't really get down. Uh, you can't dance. You can't play basketball. You can't do this. You can't do that. You know, you you feel, it feels worse when you're rejected by people that look like you because you don't feel like that you're an outsider looking in. You're like, yo, I, I know what it's like. Like I, uh, you know, I, I know what we all go through. You know, I understand, you know, I understand the culture and all that stuff. And I'm here, I'm here to hang out or whatever. Right. And they're like, nah, you ain't one of us. Get the fuck out of here. You know what I mean? And it's, 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 it's it's usually like an aggressive response, right? And you feel betrayed, you know? Because if you get punched by someone on the street corner, you're like, oh, no, that's just a crazy dude that punched me, right? But then if you go home and someone in your house punches you, you're like, I'm going to kill this motherfucker. And the reason for that is because you're like, when it's someone that you trust that you think you should trust, it hurts even more. And what happens is you become vengeful and you become vindictive. That's why one out of two, one out of five murders is always a domestic murder. Because when someone fucks with someone in the house, it goes straight to the heart, right? How dare you betray me? And to a certain extent, in some instances, I felt that way. Especially when I start doing comedy in New York City. Or in Philly, for that matter. It's like I would go do my jokes. My little bullshit-ass jokes. Um, and the audience was really fuck with me. And I, I I, thought they looked like me. I was talking about my life growing up and stuff. And then they really relate to what I was saying. I got booed. I got shit thrown at me. You know, people, people you know, kept telling me I sounded like a white boy and all that stuff. And I felt betrayed. I'm like, y'all motherfuckers. Don't even know what the fuck you're like, what the fuck you're talking about. Y'all need to expand your mind, right? So I started saying, you know what? Fuck these urban rooms. Well, actually, I didn't call them urban rooms. Urban rooms are rooms usually with like black people and Latino audiences and stuff. I didn't call them urban rooms. I called them power rooms because they were the best rooms to actually go to work your material out. It made you a better comedian. It made you a better joke writer. It made you a performer so that you could actually be funny to anybody. So I encourage anyone that's serious about comedy. Work out in power rooms, especially if you're in uh, New York City, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., Chicago. I don't know if they're still left in New York, but power rooms are the shit, right? But it got to a point where I was just like, you know what? Fuck these power rooms. I don't need these power rooms. They're not going to pay me. They're not going to give me money. I'm going to fucking go and, and, and tell jokes for these white folks. Then I realized that white people... We're laughing at me and not with me. 
because with that pain that I was feeling, uh, I started becoming self-deprecating of myself and of my culture. And it really felt like I was selling out because, oh, yeah, yeah, white folks, you know, black people do blah, 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 blah. And it's like, why would I? Why would I? Say this. <laughs> to white people, I remember this is what I knew. This is why I knew that it wasn't going to work out. I had this joke about a friend of mine or a cousin of mine, rather, that went to prison. And then the joke, I say he gets out of prison and now he's making more money than me. And he has a wife and kids in a cul-de-sac. And I, uh, at the time, I was working at Staples. And I was like, and I work at Staples or some shit, right? And I'm like, this is bullshit. I got a college education. You know, I went to Penn State the same time that, you know, he was in the pen. This is bullshit. And I remember I told that joke in front of an all-white crowd. And when I said how good he was doing, a white woman in the audience says, what? That's fucked up. And it's like, oh, like, like the joke was tongue-in-cheek. Like, it was supposed to be reacted that way, but I didn't like how she reacted to the joke. Because it didn't feel like that it was a, oh, I feel bad for you. It's, oh, no, this dude is a criminal, and he doesn't deserve a second chance. And that's when I said, I'm never turning my back on my people again. So for three years straight, I was just doing power rooms. Just doing power rooms for three years straight. And eventually, I finally cracked the code. And you know what it was? It was being authentically myself. Because for a long time, I was trying to be who I thought they wanted me to be. And it wasn't working out because it was fake. But it takes time for people to realize that. Some people just want to unplug and get out. Some people actually don't want to take the time to get to know. uh, Some people don't want to take the time to get to know other people or to understand them. When a black person grows up like myself or Candace, they're always going to come to a crossroad. That determines whether they're going to continue to jive with their community or whether they're going to leave. And a lot of times when a person leaves, like a Candace, they're out to get revenge. Every time that, you know... A video, a Candace Owens video comes across my my feed. You know, I'll listen. But it doesn't sound like it's coming from a place of love. It sounds like it's coming from within the bowels of her soul. Like, I hear the hate in her voice. And when I look and see who she aligns herself with, you know, I don't think she has our best interest, you know. She's like that one black friend that lets her white friend say the N-word, you know? 
and other black people have to deal with that white person. I remember I was working on the job, and we were uh, I was testing fire alarm systems, and it was usually two of us would go into the job together, and I was riding in the truck with one kid, and we roll up to a prison to do a, to do a, a fire alarm test. And there's some people blocking the road, and out of nowhere, this white kid just yells out the N-word. You know, there was no black people around except for me. But he thought uh, that the N-word was a verb. Right? And we looked at each other. And he said, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, my, uh, my black friend at the firehouse, they let me say the N-word. Every time a, black, a white person says that to me, I'm always trying to figure out who the fuck are these sellout ass niggas that are telling you that's okay. You can say it around me. I want to see their haircuts. I want to see if they actually go to a real barber to get a shape up or whether they go to supercuts. Because if they go to supercuts, um, they need to get their ass beat twice. First, for going to supercuts, and second, for then telling white people that they can say the N-word. Because, you know, they probably, the white person probably didn't ask. They probably weren't like, hey, uh, Tyrone, can I say the N-word? They probably, he probably voluntarily said, you know what, I think you can say the N-word. Just so you know, I I, I think you can say the N-word. Uh, you're A-OK by me. You know, a white person goes around other black people and says it. And then the other black people are about to beat his ass. And he says, but wait, my black friend Tyrone says I can say it. And then we're like, well, bring Tyrone out, too, so he can beat his ass, too. Doesn't make no goddamn sense. So to me, that's that's who Candace is. I think she's a grifter. Fuck Candace Owens. Now... Kanye, on the other hand, he's a hard one for me again because, like I said, I like Kanye. And what's interesting about what's going on now is that, uh, first of all, Kanye needs a Snickers. Um, Kanye's off his meds. He's going crazy. He's literally going Death Con 3 in everything he's saying. That's what his tweet said, right? But what's also interesting about what's happening with Kanye is that he is inadvertently revealing the hypocrisy of society as a whole. When the White Lives Matter shirt came out, it was almost revealed that people... (laughs) people don't like do people remember like Andy Kaufman you know you know the people have, do have people gone to a magic show or a circus this is a, the mirror that's being held up to society right now you know we 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 are split uh binarily I don't know if that's a word you know it's conservatives and liberals and to be honest with you Neither are funny. I think both sides take themselves way too seriously. 
So when I look at this photograph, you know, I'm saying to myself, wow, this dude is an agent of chaos. You know, yay is the Joker and Candace Owens is his Harley Quinn and he wants to see it all burn, right? But the problem with Candace is that she actually probably believes that shit uh, a little bit. You know what I mean? And the fact that he had Candace Owens there is the fact that I think he's using Candace Owens the same way that he used Marilyn uh, Manson during his one Donovan concert after he was accused of alleged SA. He says, I'm going to bring out this controversial figure that everyone hates. Let's see what happens. Right? So black Twitter goes into a frenzy. All the black celebrities come out. They tell their fan base, you know, we need to, he's dangerous. You know, we need to stop him from talking. You know, he's a sellout, et cetera, et cetera. But the ironic thing about it is, is that to be black in Hollywood, you have to sell out a little bit. Right? Now, Kanye is appearing to speak against the establishment. Um, so seeing as much criticism as he's getting and how, like, for example, the Drink Champs took down their interview of him, which I watched all three hours of. Um, and in the in the interview, he did it. He apologized for the trauma that he caused by the White Lives Matter t-shirt and the Jewish comments that he made and all that stuff, right? But he also talked about um, the word... He also made, said something interesting about when people talk about anti-Semitism. Now, the part that I agree with is the part where he was talking about in rap music, we talk a lot about killing each other. We talk about you know, fucking each other's girl and all that stuff and the violence that to have within the black community, which unfortunately some people are allowed to separate reality from art. So some people use that as their life soundtrack. And it's true to how the establishment puts money behind this type of entertainment. You know, there's a lot of shows on television uh, drug shows, you know, there's a lot of shows about slavery, movies about slavery, movies about black trauma that are funded by the establishment. And so, like, he's 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 on this trajectory of truth where what he's saying is this is this is how black people are being influenced. This is how black thought is being um, is being bought or siphoned or or manipulated, right? But when Kanye started talking directly about the Jewish community, this is when the real shit hit the fan. Now, I'll say this. I am impressed like a lot of my friends are are Jewish you know, the Yiddish community, it's a master class in intensive PR. And when I say that, I don't necessarily mean what's going on now. I'm talking about from the 1800s all the way up until now. What a magnificent comeback, right? And obviously, 
not everybody in the community is the same. Not everyone is has powerful positions. Not everyone is is able to influence other people. But the people that they have chosen to be their representatives are doing a fantastic job of keeping the community's image high, no matter what. No matter what happens in Israel, no matter what is hap- happens here in the States, no matter what anybody says, you know, you know that over time, it's it's just it's just a fucking it's fucking amazing, fucking amazing. What the 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 reputation? How they're able to keep their reputation uh, clean? You know what I mean? Um, I mean, of course, the conversation when we're talking about the relationship between the black community and the Jewish community, as well as any other community in the world, it's not a clean conversation. Because there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of similarities, but there's also a lot of overlap. Now, um, I actually wanted to do research. When, when we have this conversation about anti-Semitism and when we have this conversation about why is there such a pushback when anyone says anything um, about control, about money, about influence when it comes to the uh, Yiddish community. And, you know, I found it interesting. Um, I don't know if you knew this, but um, in the 1800s, the Russian Empire hosted the largest Jewish population in the world. And um, in 1880, it was the beginning of the Russian anti-Jewish pogroms, P-O-G-R-O-M-S. Now, if you don't know what a pogrom is, a pogrom is an organized massacre of a particular ethnic group, right? So prior to uh, to the Holocaust in the 40s, the 30s and 40s, there was actually pogroms going on all over Europe. But Russia, um, between 1880 and 1920, these pogroms were happening within its country, and more than two million Jews fled to the United States into um, the other region, which um, from 1920 on was under British rule, um, but the region that would eventually become the state of Israel, right? So two million Jews come to the United States, and they start building an infrastructure for their community, Right? And this is kind of what you saw see at the beginning of the movie An American Tale, you know, Fievel, Fievel, uh when, when the Mouskowitz are celebrating Hanukkah at the beginning of the movie. And, um, um, like, some Russians come in to, like, burn down the village or whatever, and they have to flee. And then they have to get on the tramp steamer, and then they come across the ocean to New York, right? That's... The, the Russian pogrom is basically like the opening scene of an American tale. Great movie, by the way. You should watch it. Um, so they come to the United States. They're immigrants. You know, they're new. You know, they also experience uh, racism in the United States as well. And, you know, they're able to 
you know, it, it, it's that determination, you know, that determination to survive, that determination to make something of themselves that they really um, continue to push forward. Um, they're, they're willing to push forward to establish a strong community. But that's the thing. Any community that is strong takes care of itself, takes care of each other, right? And that's the requirement for any community to really survive, to have any type of influence. And, you know, it's the same in the Asian community. It's the same in the, uh, in the uh, uh, Middle Eastern community. It's the same in, in, in you know white community and all that stuff, you know, it's keeping people out of the influence that's within the community. So after that happens, we fast forward to the late 1930s and 1940s, Germany, you know, Poland, Eastern Europe, um, Western Europe. Uh, the final solution begins. The Holocaust begins. Throughout World War II, uh, almost... Over 6 million Jews are killed by the Nazis, systemically killed by the Nazis. And during World War II, there was an organization actually called the Jewish Agency that established a Jewish army to fight alongside the British, right? Now, keep in mind that the British were ruling the land of Israel, which at the time was called the Mandatory Palestine, which from 1920... 1948 had this name. The British demanded that the number of Jewish recruits match the number of the Arab recruits, but the Palestinian leader at the time, Muhammad Amin al-Husseini, allied Palestine with Nazi Germany. So the war ends, and this is something that I didn't know. After World War II ends, uh, Jewish people still had problems in Europe at the time, especially the refugees and their survivors of uh, uh, World War Two, they all returned back. A lot of them returned back to Poland. And at this time, another pilgrim took place, uh, P O G R O M, on July Fourth, nineteen forty-six, by Polish soldiers, police officers, and civilians, where forty-two Jews were killed. Now, it started off on July first, nineteen forty-six, when an eight-year-old Polish boy claimed that he was kidnapped by a Jewish family and kept in their basement. Right. So when the boy got back with his father, they go down to the citizens militia with this story and soldiers started investigating. They found this house that this boy was supposed to be held in and the civilians started circulating this story that Jews were ritually kidnapping and murdering Polish children, right? So it was just, they were still believing this bad propaganda about Jews to justify enacting violence against them. Right, um, which is the same thing that happens to black people. It's the same thing that happens to black people, where people feed into the propaganda. They ex they assume the worst, and it justifies their violence against us. So, so we have a lot of similarities, both of us, right? So, it became apparent that Poland itself wasn't the place that the Jewish people could return to after the war. So in 1947, the United Nations presented the partition plan and the 
British withdrew from the mandatory Palestine, Palestine when the Jews moved into this region. It started the Arab-Israeli Civil War from 1947 to 1948. In 1948, the Israeli Defense Forces grows when other Jewish immigrants show up. They declare their independence, and the Israeli state is now officially recognized by the General Assembly of the United Nations, or in other words, the United States and Great Britain. In 1952, September 10th, the reparations agreement between Israel and the Federal Republic of Germany is signed and enforced in, in March 27th, 1953. Now, Germany has to pay reparations to Jewish people for their relocation to Israel. They're paying moving fees, which uh, is fucking amazing, right? Now, the interesting thing I've always asked myself, I was actually, I was actually talking to uh, a friend of mine about this, is that when we have this conversation about Zionism um, and also Christian Zionism, um, for example, Christian Zionism is a belief among some Christians that the return of the Jews to the Holy Land or Israel um, and the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948 were in accordance with Bible prophecy, which is something that I really didn't know. I didn't know that. Um, you know, it's something like reading this Wikipedia article in the United States. In 1818, you know, President John Adams wrote, I really wish the Jews again in Judea an independent nation and believed that they would gradually become Unitarian Christians. Um, and basically, the reason for this is because Christian Zionists believe that the gathering of the Jews in Israel is a prerequisite for the second coming of Christ. Um, this is an idea from uh, many Protestant circles uh, since the Reform Reformation that Christians should actively support a Jewish return to the land of Israel. Along with the parallel idea that the Jews ought to be encouraged to become Christians as a means of fulfilling Bible prophecy. And the gathering of Israel, um, because remember in, in the Bible, uh, you know, when we talk about the exile of, uh, uh, the, exile of the Israelites, in uh, Deuteronomy th chapter 30, verses 1 through 5, it's about, uh, uh, it's the prophecy, the biblical promise given uh, by Moses to the people of Israel um, that they would enter into the promised land. You know, it's actually been a long time um, since I've actually read this. But, you know, during it says, during the days of the Babylonian exile, writings of the prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel encouraged the people of Israel with the promise of a future gathering of the exiles to the land of Israel. The continual hope for a return of the Israelites' exiles to the land has long been a core theme of rel religious Judaism since the destruction of the Second Temple. Herod's Temple. Miamnites, 
Oh, my my mon my monites, my monites, my monites. I guess connected its materialization with the coming of the Messiah. The gathering of the exiles in the land of Israel became the core idea of the Zionist movement and the core idea of Israel's scroll of independence, embodied by the idea of going up, Aliyah, since the Holy Land is considered to be spiritually higher than all other land. The immigration of Jews to the land and the state of Israel, the mass wave of um, Ali, uh, Aliyot, has been likened to the exodus from Egypt. So again, uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, before Moses died, you know, you have the Moses' promise. When Moses uh, uh, all, was dying, he prophesied about the destiny of the people of Israel. Their destiny would not be promising. Curses would come upon them and they would go into exile. But when they return to their homeland later, their situation will be as good as it had been in the past. So in the book of Deuteronomy 30, uh, verses 1 through 5, if you read the scripture, this is what Moses said. It said, and it will be when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, that you will consider in your heart among all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. And you will return to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And you will listen to his voice according to all that I am commanding you this day, you and your children. Then the Lord your God will bring back your exiles and he will have mercy upon you. He will once again gather you from all the nations where the Lord your God had dispersed you. Even if your exiles are at the end of the heavens, the Lord your God will gather you from there, and he will take you from there. And the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your forefathers possessed, and you will take possessions of it, and he will do good to you, and he will make you more numerous than your forefathers. Man, it's been a long time since I've read this, right? So... So there's one prophecy, and then you have the prophet's prophecy in Isaiah, chapter 11, which I'm not going to read right now. But, you know, a lot of Christian Zionists, which, to a certain extent, you know, growing up Jehovah's Witness, we never really talked about um, modern-day Israel. You know, we talked a lot about, um, we talked a lot about, you know, Moses and, and the Jews being exiled and, and, their, and their return to the Promised Land. But it makes sense now why uh, Israel, the state of Israel, has so much support because a lot of people feel that it's actually fulfilling Bible prophecy, which will open up the way for Jesus to return. You know, that's from the Christian aspect, right? Um, but, you know, going back to the historical aspect of it, you know, what's fascinating to me is that not only were um, was Israel able to get reparations, but also, they were able to somewhat get vengeance for what happened to them during World War II, right? And they kind of established this this precedent where if anyone fucked with Israel, they were going to get fucked up, right? Like, during the Cold War, you had, uh, uh, through Mossad, which is like the Israeli intelligence agency, um, there was a group of Nazi hunters that were all over the world uh, hunting down Nazi criminals, fucking them up, either assassinating them or putting them on trial for war crimes, if you ever seen the music, the movie Munich, um, it's about the 1972 uh, Palestinian terrorist attack on the uh, uh, 
Munich Olympics where they killed um, the Israeli uh, athletes. And then afterwards, Mossad found those responsible for the attack and fucked them up. Um, and like I said, black people and, and Jewish people, we have a lot in common. We do. We have a lot in common. But the thing with us, the black community, and I think this is where the division comes, is that we, first of all, we don't have like a nation where we can go and be supported. Like Africa is a big fucking continent, right? And in Africa, there's a bunch of countries. They all have different politics. They all have different customs. They all have different traditions, right? So it's not like we just go back to Africa. That's not a thing, right? So a lot of us, we don't know where we're from, you know, especially black Americans. It's like we're American, but when it comes, but we have kind of modern culture that we've developed, but it's not necessarily like something that can be seen as like an entity that we own. Right. And that's because we've allowed other people into our community that kind of run things for us, which is interesting. Right. Like we don't have like a mascot of racism. There's not like a face that we look to and we're like, oh, my God, that guy started slavery. You know, Um, so that means that everyone can have plausible deniability. So we can be like, oh, wait, those those people are responsible for slavery. Oh, no, we're not really responsible because, you know, the, the, the homie. They were selling saying, oh, shit, did the homie. But what about the friend? Oh, yeah, well, you know, it was the Spanish that really, you know, it was the Spanish that really did it. But, you know, the French people, they, like, kind of, like, freed you guys or whatever. Or, or, like, the British people, they don't really like slavery anymore either. So so it was, like, everyone keeps, like, passing the buck, right? So anytime that we make a demand for reparations, it's like, well, I mean, you know, we all are are suffering in this country. You know, it's it's how can we give you reparations? And it's like there's no real <laughs> there's no real solid person to go to that says, you know what, we demand reparations. Like there's no country in the world that's like forcing the United States to pay reparations to people. Like the United Nations is and the US and Britain, they're like enforcing Germany to pay reparations to Israel and supporting Israel because of this belief system there's a belief system there's also there's also political and financial interest that the united states and britain have in israel so they're like y'all need to pay what you owe right and we don't really have that for god's sakes white people started the naacp you know it seems like rachel dolezal is doing more for for black people now than anybody else i don't know it's you know we, we, we don't have a task force. You know, even when we started, like, the Black Panthers who were supposed to, you know, represent us and demand justice, you know, they got shut down by the government. You know, we don't have stink state-sanctioned support for fighting injustice, you know? So it's like you see other people that's like, okay, these people are getting reparations. These people have a home base. These people have, like, a birthright. You know, there's this unity, there's this support, you know, because a lot of us, we don't even have, we don't support each other. We don't trust each other, you know, some black people from other countries that have different viewpoints than us. You know, we don't 
support. You know, there's no worldwide family of black people. In the Yiddish community, there's also, you know, schools and neighborhoods where they promote uh, Jewish pride in their youth. So people grow up being proud to be Jewish, you know. When uh, Brown versus Board of Education happened, it's like it wasn't like we got schools that were on par with the white schools. We went to white schools. You know, so if the teacher was like racist or whatever, we had to deal with that racism. You know, we got taught half history. So what needed to happen instead of us putting faith into the schooling system ourselves is like you get half the education there, but you also get the other half of education at home. I think that's lacking right now. It's like, yo, like, like we need to like read to our kids. We need to take our kids like to museums and stuff and, and, and give them the opportunity to learn about their past and their present and their future. We don't encourage things, um, encourage things that are, they're very positive. There's many different ways to make money. You know, there's many different ways to support and build up your community. Building up self-esteem is also important too, you know, Having high self-esteem is one of the most important things that anybody can have. High self-esteem in your culture, high self-esteem in your family, high self-esteem in yourself. And what happens is you train yourself. You train yourself to not allow what people think or say to uh, to make you shrink back. You know, it's a challenge, but it's required. Now, Kanye start ranting about Jewish people controlling the media. And I understand why that propaganda is dangerous for some because whatever goes on in the media, it can cause people to react violently or it can cause people to to look at uh, look at a community in, in a way that could potentially be harmful, right? But from my standpoint, looking at it, I just think it's just people that have made amazing business decisions. That's it, right? I mean, I would love to have a representative in the media to kind of like push, uh, you know, kind of to, 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 to make sure that we're represented correctly. You know, I guess for now we're going to have to just deal with Tyler Perry and Jordan Peele. But if you look at the history of Hollywood, right? When it got started, the main uh, the main people that that started the studios, you know, they were smart business people, you know. Yeah, Universal Pictures, which was founded in 1912, started by Carl Lemley, who was Jewish, you know. Paramount Pictures also started in 1912. Adolf Zucker, Jewish. Um, Daniel Froman, Jewish. Charles Froman, Jewish, founders of Paramount Pictures. Uh, funny fact, well, not funny, but interesting fact was that Charles... Uh, Froman was on the RMS Lusitania, which was a sister ship to the Titanic, when it was sunk in 1915 uh, during World War One. He uh, died in its sinking, unfortunately. Um, MGM was started in 1924. Marcus Lowe, or Lowe, Lowe, who brought... Uh, Mayor Goldwyn and the other guy together to make MGM Jewish cat. Um, the Warner Brothers, all four of the Warner Brothers were Jewish. Um, two out of the four founders of 20th Century Fox, Jewish. Now, Walt Disney uh, was not Jewish. 
Um, there's a lot of common misconception because, you know, the last CEO, Bob Iger, was Jewish. Um, uh, there's a lot of misconception that Disney is a Jewish company. It's not. Uh, Walt Disney was not Jewish. As a matter of fact, there's a rumor that he was uh, kind of anti-Semitic himself. So there's actually a hilarious article. I uh, read that that had something to do with this. It's um, it's it's written by Joel Stein, who, if you ever saw like I love the '80s and I love the '90s on VH1, he's a journalist for the LA Times, and he's always he was always like a commentator on these I love shows fucking hilarious right he says uh he wrote this article in december 19 2008 it says who runs hollywood come on joel stein december 19 2008 i actually want to read this article um the article says well i'm just making sure um the article says So, Who Runs Hollywood? Come on. By Joel Stein. Hilarious journalist, by the way. December 19, 2008. He says, I've never been so upset by a poll in my life. Only 22% of Americans now believe the movie and television industry are pretty much run by Jews. Down from nearly 50% in 1964. The Anti-Defamation League, which released the poll results last month, sees in these numbers a victory against stereotyping. Actually, it just shows how dumb America has gotten. Jews totally run Hollywood. How deeply Jewish is Hollywood? When the studio chiefs took out a full-page ad in the Los Angeles Times a few weeks ago to demand that the Screen Actors Guild settle its contract, the open letter was signed by News Corp President Peter Shernan, who's Jewish, Paramount Pictures chairman Brad Gray, also Jewish. Walt Disney Company chief executive Robert Iger, Jewish. Sony Pictures chairman Michael Linton, surprise, Dutch Jew. Warner Brothers chairman Barry Mayer, Jewish. CBS Corp chief executive Leslie Moonvis, I sorry, so Jewish. His great uncle was the first prime minister of Israel. MGM chairman Harry Sloan, Jewish. And NBC Universal Chief Executive Jeff Zucker, mega Jewish. If either of the Weinstein brothers had signed, this group would have not only the power to shut down all film production, but to form a minyan with enough Fiji water on hand to fill a mikvah. The person they were yelling at in that ad was SAG President Alan Rosenberg. Take a guess. The skating rebuttal to the ad was written by entertainment super agent Ari Emanuel, Jew with Israeli parents, on the Huffington Post, which is owned by Ariana Huffington, not Jewish, and has never worked in Hollywood. The Jews are so dominant, I had to score the trades to come up with six Gentiles in high positions at entertainment companies. When I called them to talk about their incredible advancement, first of them refused to talk to me, apparently out of fear of insulting Jews. The sixth... AMC president Charlie Collier turned out to be Jewish. As a proud Jew, 
I want America to know that our accomplish about our accomplishment. Yes, we control Hollywood. Without us, you'd be flipping between the 700 Club and David and Goliath on TV all day. So I've taken it upon myself to reconvince America that Jews run Hollywood by launching a public relations campaign, because that's what we do best. I'm weighing several slogans, including Hollywood, more Jewish than ever. Hollywood, from the people who brought you the Bible. In Hollywood, if you enjoy TV and movies, then you probably like Jews after all. I called ADL chairman Abe Foxman, who was in Santiago, Chile, where he told me to my dismay he was not hunting Nazis. He dismissed my whole proposition, saying that the number of people who think Jews run Hollywood is still too high. The ADL poll, he pointed out, showed that 59% of Americans think Hollywood execs do not share the religious and moral values of most Americans. And 53% think the entertainment industry is waging an organized campaign to weaken the influence of religious values in this country. That's a sinister canard, Foxman said. It means they think Jews meet at Cantor's Deli on Friday mornings to decide what's best for the Jews. Foxman's argument made me rethink, I have to eat at Cantor's more often. Which, by the way, if you ever get a chance, go to Cantor's Deli on Fairfax. If you're ever in Los Angeles, fucking amazing. Um, get the spicy, which is a cheddar, uh, jalapeno, uh, uh, bagel with, um, uh, I think there's like turkey. No, there's pastrami in it. Pastrami and cheese, uh, pepper jack cheese, uh, vegetables. Uh, try it. Tell them Keenan Jerome Floyd sent you. All right. Back to the article. That's a very dangerous phrase. Jews control Hollywood. What is true is that there are a lot of Jews in Hollywood, he said. Instead of control, Foxman would prefer people say that many executives in the industry happen to be Jewish. As in all eight major film studios are run by men who happen to be Jewish. But Foxman said he is proud of the accomplishments of American Jews. I think Jews are disproportionately represented in the creative industry. They're disproportionate as lawyers and probably medicine here as well. He said, he argues that this does not mean that Jews make pro-Jewish movies any more than they do pro-Jewish surgery. Though other countries, I've noticed, aren't so big on circumcision. I appreciate Foxman's concerns, and maybe my life spent in New Jersey, New York, slash Bay Area, LA, pro-Semitic cocoon has left me naive. But I don't care if Americans think we're running the news media, Hollywood, Wall Street, or the government. I just care that we get to keep running them. I think that article is hilarious. I think it's hilarious. So do the Jews uh, control the media according to Kanye? Let's say no. Is there a lot of influence and power? Let's just say... A lot of smart decisions were made. Now, is Kanye goofy? Absolutely. Does he need his meds? Absolutely. Did he drop some jewels in uh, the Drink Champs interview? Absolutely. This conversation that black people are having about building our own stuff and generational wealth, it's not an easy conversation because what's going to happen is we're going to be stepping on a lot of toes while we have this conversation because we're so entrenched 
into American culture. And so many people are making money off of us that's very hard for us to rip ourselves out, right? Like when integration started, we weren't necessarily going into integration with the best business sense. So we weren't going into, into integration with the uh, uh, best best foot forward, right? We were just looking for equality, right? Now, not the, the, the Jewish conversation I'm leaving that behind. I'm not talking about that anymore. I'm talking about the bigger picture that Kanye is talking about is this thing where this country, this society and mainstream media tries to control black people's voices. We see that when it comes to politics. Donald Trump says, hey, if you're black, vote for me. What do you have to lose? Joe Biden came in after him and said, yo, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black. Right? If you have an opinion that's di- that's different than the status quo, they say, well, you ain't really for the people. You're a sellout. You're a C-O-O-N. And it doesn't matter what you have done for the community or, or how much money that you have invested, you know? George Floyd's family, based on some incorrect uh, comments that they feel that Kanye said in the Drink Champs interview, is trying to sue Kanye for $250 million. Even though Kanye gave the family $2 million for a college fund. Who told him to sue him for $250 million? Is he the worst person just because he said some shit? They didn't even let George Floyd stay in their house. And this is not talking shit about George Floyd. But it's interesting how people jump on the trend. $250 million for some words. I feel that when it comes to black men, people pay attention to what we say and what we do just to discredit us, I feel, right? Like today it's Kanye. Tomorrow might be LeBron James. Someone's going to tell him to shut up. You know, Killer Mike, when he chooses to vote for someone that the the black media feels he shouldn't vote for, all of a sudden he's a sellout, right? Ice Cube, when he says, look, I need to talk to both sides. We need to figure out how to really get an establishment for our community. They called him a sellout. Jay-Z, when he got involved with the NFL, he's a sellout, right? Even sweetheart Issa Rae, she made comments about Ezra Miller and how Hollywood continues to protect toxic people. Now Ezra might be going to jail. He has a trial coming out. But the fact that she said it, people were telling her, oh, she needs to mind her own business. Why is she talking like this? Right? So every time a black person of influence speaks out on the reality of their situation, and their lived experience also from other people that have similar experiences, and it goes against the status quo, they always try to shut them down. So if you're black, and the mainstream media is supporting your message 110%, then you might be doing it wrong. This has been Cultured.